Good afternoon and welcome to Refocusing Your Medical Device Security Program Around Protecting Human Life, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Sensato. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box and we'll take those later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time, we're going to go about 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Todd Bell, CISO and, exec CISO and Executive Director for IT Compliance at ValueWise Health, Teresa Meadows, SVP and CIO at Cook Children's Healthcare System, Rich Temple, VP and CIO at Deborah Heart and Lung Center, and John Gomez, CEO with Sensato. So let's jump right in. Um, Todd, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Yeah, so we have a few hospitals here in the Phoenix area as a safety net uh, organization. And so we have a, a lot of medical devices, uh, since we're going to be talking about that today, about 12,000. And about 7,000 of those devices are uh, network enabled. And so uh, we also do behavioral health and uh, acute uh, patient care as well. Very good. Uh, Teresa. Hey everybody, Teresa Meadows. I'm with Cook Children's in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, Cook Children's is a fairly large pediatric integrated delivery system. We're a standalone institution, so when you think about peds, a lot of times you think it'll be about being affiliated with a medical school or uh, maybe a uh, larger adult hospital, so we're fully standalone. Um, we have one major hospital in Fort Worth, but soon to open uh, in December, our second hospital in the Dallas Prosper area. Um, we have about 120 physician office locations throughout the state of Texas, pretty much every specialty, primary care, urgent care. We have a large home health uh, arm that does home health, DME, and uh, pharmaceutical uh, medication distribution um, throughout the state. And then we're also a Medicaid health plan. And we have about 150,000 members in our health plan couple of joint ventures. So various, various ways that, you know, uh, cyber can be hmm. impactful just with the ver the variety of uh, service offerings that we provide. Very good. Thank you, Teresa. Rich? Hi, everybody. My name is Rich Temple. I'm Vice President and Chief Information Officer for the Deborah Heart and Lung Center in beautiful Browns Mills, New Jersey. Uh, Deborah is a cardiovascular specialty hospital. We're standalone. We're also one of only three hospital systems in the country that uh, does not balance bill patients as part of our mission. And it sort of makes it a kind of a very gratifying place to work, knowing that we can provide excellent care to people and not have there be a price tag on life, as our founder said. So it's, again, a very, very nice, very nice place to work, knowing that that's the mission. Um, at, we don't have a CISO here, per se. Um, I'm, in addition to being the CIO, I'm also the HIPAA security officer, and that means that I wind up having sort of a conflict, conflicting, conflict, conflicting goals sometimes. As a CIO, we want to make information as accessible uh, as we possibly can. And wearing the HIPAA security hat, we also have to make sure that information is properly guarded so that things don't leak out, and uh, that we keep a we keep a very very tight rein on um, you know our whole infrastructure. So um, it's, it's sometimes conflicting, but. Um, 
both super important and I'm really glad to be here today. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. John? Yeah, thank you. Um, so Sensato started back in 2013. Uh, we're a healthcare-specific cybersecurity firm. We're actually we're the first healthcare-specific cybersecurity firm. About 90% of our clients are hospitals. Um, two things that make us a little bit different um, is we have a memorandum of understanding with the uh, FDA. We're actually the agency that is called if there are uh, specific threats against medical devices here in the United States. We typically work on the tactical response to that um, in terms of what should be done to respond to those types of attacks in the first 24 to 72 hours. Uh, we're also an information sharing and analysis organization under uh, Department of Homeland Security and ISAO. Um, we're cross-sector ISAO, so we monitor all critical infrastructure sectors and try to determine what does that mean to the healthcare sector. Um, so that's kind of us. Our, our, you know, our background is in on the advisory services is things like pen testing and incident response. We've been involved in medical device security since 2014-15 when we started the medical device cybersecurity task force. Um, but that's kind of us. Yeah. Thank you. Very good, John. Thank you. All right, uh, Todd, we're going to start with you. Considering how dependent clinicians are on technology to provide the level of care they are expected to provide and that they're used to providing. Talk about the difference between an EMR going down versus a biomedical device. Now, we understand the EMR is the large, all-encompassing uh, application, uh, but the, the biomedical device has that such direct connection to the patient that it makes you think that there may be more direct patient harm implications for that biomedical device going down. So that's sort of the genesis of of what we're thinking. And with this difference in mind, how do security and IT professionals need to treat each of these technologies differently in terms of protection and business continuity planning? So wherever you want to jump in with that, Todd. Yeah, so from an EMR uh, perspective, uh, let's say it's Epic or CERN, or, uh, you know, that's obviously going to have a much huger impact because uh, now that's interfering with patient care, and it might put us in a diversion uh, mode. And so that's something that we definitely want to be avoiding. Now, when we think about biomedical devices, uh, we feel that that's a little bit more targeted. Uh, it's almost kind of a one-to-one -one ratio versus a mini uh, or uh, to all across uh, for the EMR system. And so what we've noticed is that we put a lot of emphasis into our EMR system because of the huge impact. And so you know, we really focus with the, uh, you know, our BCA processes uh, for that to uh, make sure that we have the safeguards put in place. Uh, so obviously we're very concerned about ransomware events, but also business continuity. And so it plays a huge role. And then as far as the biomedical devices, uh, we do our best to keep up with our patching, uh, you know, especially if it's an infusion pump or something like that. Uh, and we but that's kind of a blind spot, I think, for a number of hospitals. Uh, it's uh, an area where we want to improve in because we don't have enough visibility in these areas. And so we're so focused on the ransomware stuff that we've kind of glossed over a lot of the medical devices. And so this is uh, where we have to improve. Okay, well, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how we can do that. Teresa, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I was going to add, you know, I think today... Uh, the EHR is probably the most critical, but when you start thinking about, you know, some of the mask attacks that could occur, if I had my whole fleet of Alaris pumps taken out at once and nurses had to manually calculate IV drips 
and distribute medications. Um, that would be a pretty critical situation as they probably haven't done that in many, many, many years. And so that business continuity planning and understanding what would I do? You know, one pump down is not a big deal, but 250 pumps down or 400 pumps down is a pretty significant uh, patient safety risk. And so I, I think we have to start thinking more globally about what would be our what would be our plan if that were to happen. And to Todd's point earlier, I don't think we've spent tons of time talking about what to do with the EHR being down, but we haven't talked about some of these critical you know, distribution things that um, nurses and doctors use every day. If those were not available, what would we do? Right. And we'll, you know, we'll get more into that. That's sort of a very interesting place and trying to figure out who takes the leadership in, in doing that planning, right? Because it's, it's where does IT fall off and where does clinical begin? I mean, you can maybe suggest, hey, guys, this could happen. You, want, you might want to make sure everybody could operate without these pumps and remember how to do the manual. But who is in charge of making sure that happens? And for my discussions, sometimes it's, it's nobody at this point. Is that right, Teresa? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, in July of this year, the Joint Commission just put out a new regulation or a new requirement around business continuity planning. And they are going to look at organizations' business continuity plans uh, for these for this exact reason. And so we've been having lots of meetings internally about, you know, how do we build a team in operations that can lead this effort around what will I do if the if the equipment or the software is not available? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just something like every solution we initially they initially came up with was a technical solution. And so we have to get them to a point where they can think about what are the non-technical things that we can do. So we're putting a lot of emphasis there now. We just had a joint commission survey about, you know, two months ago. So we've got three years, hopefully, till they show up again. (laughs) But um, that is something that's at the top of our minds. Um, And, you know, originally people thought that the emergency management uh, coordinator director is the right person. But what we're finding is they don't have the skill set around cyber to truly understand what the implications of that are. So we're really partnering closely uh, with them, with her, on how do we you know, talk about what the implications are and then what, what are the kind of things we need to think about. So we're using some of our nursing informatics people to help, um, but it, it's a fairly uh, detailed process for sure. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, John? Yeah, I think, um, you know, some of the themes have been hit on in terms of at least what we see when either there has been an actual attack or we simulate the attack in terms of uh, doing a tabletop or or a pen test or something of that nature. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that we try to get across to people is time travel. In most instances, when the EMR goes down, you're going to go to paper and the idea is, hey, IT is going to get this back up in 24 hours or so. In fact, most hospitals, when they practice downtime, maybe do it for two to four hours in an outside case, an edge case, the hospital's gone to paper for maybe 48 to 72 hours. When you have a situation where we take out even, so let's say you have an attack and I take out one smart pump. Um, the question now becomes, so let's say you have 400 smart pumps. How do you know all other smart pumps um, haven't been in some way interacted with by the attacker? 
So even if I don't lock them up on you as the attacker, I just lock out one. You now have a situation where you can't, from a patient safety perspective, really trust those pumps. And so if you have two, three, 400 pumps and you have to bring in a forensics team now to clear the pumps, that could take weeks, right? So now we're in a situation where the hospital's effectively down from using smart pumps for three or four weeks. Your EMR is still up and running, but you now have all these little things that Teresa kind of touched on, which we find is how do nurses do titration, you know, and, and how do they not become frustrated? And so it becomes a very quick, uh, very quickly becomes a very challenging problem that is really beyond IT. Um, and it really the executive levels that need to understand. And when we've done tabletops like this, it becomes very eye-opening very quickly that when you move somebody through time four weeks after an attack and all the smart pumps are still down, they start to realize, okay, we, this is a much bigger issue than, than a ransomware attack, not to minimize what a ransomware attack can do. But when we talk about medical devices, the attacker just has to be, I could, you know, we just had a situation where we took down somebody's cath lab during a pen test. And that, that has reverberations throughout the hospital as to, can I trust anything else now that's connected to the network? So, so Rich, what's interesting is that, you know, the clinical folks, if, if the IT folks are not talking to the clinical folks and giving them scenarios, the clinical folks may, it may never enter their mind that we could lose all our pumps. So they're not planning for how to deal with losing all their pumps. So is it incumbent upon the IT security folks to roll out scenarios that clinical folks never even imagined could happen and say, hey, guys, you got to figure out this could happen. We're doing everything we can to prevent it. But you have to figure out when I call you up and say, all your pumps are out, you need to have a plan. Is that your role to, to, to have that conversation or, or is it going to be going forward? I think it's my role to catalyze that conversation. It can't be me alone. Our, our director of biomed needs to be involved. Our chief nursing leadership needs to be involved as well, because we have to train our clinical staff to look for any kind of aberrations in terms of how pumps or other uh, medical devices are working and to report those right away. So, I mean, there, you know, there are boots on the ground. And sometimes when a system goes down uh, in EH, from an EHR perspective, we kind of know that pretty quickly. It might be a little bit more subtle as some number of pumps or other medical devices start going down or misbehaving. So we need to definitely engage those nurses on the ground to, if you see something, say something and have a downtime plan that goes along the lines of what you'd have with an EHR. Oftentimes I find the um, biomedical, if you will, medical device uh, downtime plans are not nearly as fleshed out as the full EHR ones are because it's, a, it's one is one is one is a macro, if you will, the EHR, and one is a micro. But the micro can do irreparable harm, just like everybody has said as well. You know, another challenge that uh, we have with regard to dealing with any kind of adverse situations that may present themselves with um, with medical devices is oftentimes we're much more dependent on the vendor themselves to be able to go in and make changes and do patching and to help us respond if something goes awry. I feel like we have for the EHR, if not all, we have a lot of the keys to the kingdom. I do feel with our medical devices, we have fewer of them and the vendors got to play a bigger role. So they've, they're also have to be, they also have to be part of the mix in terms of coming up with what kind of a business continuity um, we would be able to come up with in the event of something going horribly off the rails. Right. So those are conversations that need to be initiated with the vendor, correct? Correct. Yeah. All right. Very good. Let's uh, move on to the next question. Teresa, we're going to start with you. 
How does looking at business continuity planning and device security through a patient safety lens change the plans that are ultimately made? And um, do you think that people are starting, security professionals and IT professionals are starting to change again the lens through which they do these things from sort of protecting data to protecting patients? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably the queen of saying that uh, cybersecurity is a patient safety issue. I mean, I think if, if every webinar I've been on, that's kind of been my mantra. Uh, and, I, and I think part of the issue that we're having is, is that clinicians don't appreciate the amount of technology they actually use on a given day. I mean, I can, I'm a nurse by background. And so when I talk to nurses and I say, can you tell me like all the places in your, your patient room that are potential, uh, you know, cybersecurity issues, they get the easy ones. They get the easy one like the EHR or the cow that the EHR is on. They might get the IV pump. But then you start think, talking about things like, what about the, the smart bed that our patients are on that actually is wireless and does weighing of the patient and communicates that with the EHR? What about um, the child? Lucky for us, we have all kinds of people who bring devices into our organization you know, what about the child and the mom or the dad who's using their iPad um, on our guest wireless that then connects, you know, might be a potential issue to other networks in our organization? What about the, the blinds that, you know, are automatically controlled and have IP addresses? And so as you start going through the list of things, there's a ton of education at the lowest level with clinicians. They just don't appreciate all the different ways that th these things can happen. And so I do think it's a partnership with us educating them um, on way things can happen, but then also facilitating discussions. Okay, if you did not have your IV pump, what would be the next step? Would it be, we're going to call our a leasing company and we're going to lease 500 new pumps? Are we going, how are we going, are we going to stop taking patients to the ICU? So I do think we have to lead them a little bit through the conversation um, and use, you know, more of our business hat and less of our IT hat to help them kind of think through, okay, if I don't have this thing, what are my options? Because I just don't think we've taken the time to really do that. Um, and they're not educated and there's not a lot of education for frontline staff on, you know, what What are the risks with the medical devices that they use each day? Um, and I think that's that's where a lot, it's going to be a very blurry line between IT and operations with this kind of uh, type of issues that we're working. And that's what I'm curious about, Teresa, is, is do you feel that has to be your role because it's no one else's? So you say, okay, I could, this is going to be me. And well, you're you're also an RN. You have a little more, you know, you have certainly have more credence bringing that message. I wonder if other IT folks, if they try and get the clinical folks to work on clinical plans for outages, if they might get pushback and say, hey, just keep your stuff working. Don't worry about us. If it doesn't work, we'll figure it out. I don't know. Yeah, that's where I personally feel like it's my responsibility because we're the only people who know. Mm -hmm. So what I've tried to do is take people in my organization. So like nursing informatics. Their, their role is to help people through workflow challenges, and they know the workflows of a lot of clinical types of workflows. So I like to introduce our clinical informatics folks into that discussion so they can say, 
to a nurse or a doctor or a pharmacist, hey, this is how your current process is using technology. Let's pull out these pieces and let's talk about, you know, how do we do something different? I think we have to think about some of the roles that we have in our organization that are trusted roles today, like a nursing informaticist or a pharmacy informaticist, and get them more engaged in the cybersecurity pieces because they speak the lingo of the clinician or the person that they support. So that's kind of been the approach that we've been taking, which is we're going to assign nursing informatics folks. We're going to train them up so they understand what the cyber issues are, but then they can they can explain it in a way to a nurse or a doctor or whoever in a more uh, less intimidating way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that maybe help, you know, identify some champions in those areas who really have kind of caught on to kind of start spreading the word that way. But that's kind of been an approach we've taken, um, especially around business continuity planning um, in our organization. Todd, your thoughts? Uh, I'll address this from uh, multiple perspectives. Um, I give credit to our CIO where we have an HTM group that takes care of all of our medical devices. And it was a standalone, which most places have, and we merged it with IT. And so the beauty about that is now we have cybersecurity collaborating with the clinical devices. And so this is a big area for improvement. Uh, The other thing that we're doing is we're planning for failure. And so I think Theresa is bringing up a lot of really interesting points because I think from an EMR perspective, you know, we got that down pat. We got backup paper forms and USB drives to go to Staples and we're just planning for the worst. However, when it comes to the medical devices, uh, this is an area that, you know, there's some opportunities for improvement here. And so uh, this is where we are trying to work with uh, some potential grant funding to try to get some better visibility into this because there's some potential situations that could play out. And I think this is going to be probably the next new frontier from a hacker perspective. Hackers are really, you know, cashing in on the ransomware activities right now but they really haven't gone after the medical devices. And I know that there's little instances here and there, but I think this is gonna be the next frontier because now we can start to focus on these infusion pumps and now we can start to go for uh, maybe 400 or 500. And I think Theresa, you make an interesting point about, I think our response plan would be, we would contact a leasing company to try to hurry up and get these new infusion pumps in while we have to troubleshoot and figure out what happened to the existing. So I think that would probably be our game plan. Yeah, it's very interesting when you when you think it through, right? That's an interesting idea. Uh, John, do you have any thoughts on, you know, we talked about who's who should be leading this. And and if if not the CIO or the CISO, what should their roles be? So I think it, you know, and I, I speak and I work with a lot of boards and C-suite and I get the question a lot, like, you know, you got 15 minutes and tell me what I should be asking my, my IT security or my IT team. Um, and one of the, there's a few things I tell them in those 15 minutes. And one of the three key things I tell them is that you need to change the objectives of IT, especially when it comes to IT security. And I think when you change those objectives, it changes the lens and the responsibility. So the first part of that is to change that that responsibility is to say, listen, your primary role as IT and IT security is to assure that there is never a patient safety issue that comes from 
a technical system, whether that's a medical device or a network issue or a server, there can never be a patient safety issue. Now, changing that and that objective suddenly takes us from really being focused on data and protecting data to protecting patients. But there is a trade-off there, right? If you make that priority, then what you're really saying is, look, somebody might get the patient data, um, but as long as they don't harm the patient, we're okay. And that that shift in mindset, that shift in responsibility is also really scary for, for IT, IT security, and those that are part of that, because now you're suddenly going to them and saying, your number one job is to protect patients. And that, I think, is an industry shift that we have to make. Um, we'll talk more about this, I think, as the as we progress with the panel, but that to me is the biggest kind of way to change the lens and suddenly priorities change and how we organize ourselves and who's going to take the lead and how OEM works. And all of those things change when you have somebody saying your number one responsibility is to protect patients from, from any type of network attack. Um, and it's scary because I think we all kind of know that that's not what we've done for the past 10 or 15 years, right? That's not been the primary role of IT. And John, if you do that, does that immediately put this biomedical device issue front and center? I think so, because I, I would suspect most, IT, and you know, I'm I'm not on that side of the world, so the, the other person on the panel probably know this better. But I think if a CEO came to anyone on the panel and said, "Your number one job now is protect patients," um, I'm, I'm assuming they would immediately start saying, "Well, if you want me to do that, then we need to have a very serious conversation about biomed." And, mm. clini- and clinicians and incident response and how we're going to do all those things because it's a very different objective than maybe what I do today. Rich, your thoughts? Well, I think that's everything that everyone said just makes tons of sense. Um, in my world, Biomed does not report to me, but I have a very close relationship with them. And I think we have to because you know, as we look at patient safety and uh, the safety of patient data as well, um, all of us need to be involved. Uh, one thing I think which is worth noting is that uh, I don't think any of us need convincing of the fact that having a ransomware attack on an EHR is very definitely a patient safety issue. I think mm. we all know that for sure. However, if you look at it over a certain period of time, if you go one minute out, five minutes out, 10 minutes out, 15 minutes out, it may not be a patient safety issue. I'm talking about an EHR in this case at that moment in time, though it sure is heck going to be. Um, from a medical device perspective, those minutes count. So out of the box, if a medical device is disabled or a large number of medical devices are disabled, even for a very, very small amount of time, you now have an immediate patient safety issue and mm. you have to treat it with that level of urgency. Yeah, and it changes the, the business continuity plans. That's a really good point, Rich. All right. Um Next question, Rich, we're going to stick with you. In the past year, a lawsuit was brought against a hospital for not disclosing an in-progress ransomware attack. As a result, a newborn died when a fetal monitoring system couldn't detect an anomaly due to the system being compromised by the ransomware attack. Well, let's stick with the first bullet point for you, Rich. How does this example make you rethink your approach to cybersecurity? Anything additional to what we've already talked about here? I think it really reinforces the need to be as transparent as we can with ourselves, with our community, with all of our stakeholders as to what is happening and how we're doing it. I mean, obviously there needs to be some control over messaging. You wanna make sure that 
rumors and hearsay don't get out. But you also don't want to keep it under your hat because it will get out. And <clears throat> America being a litigious society under the best of circumstances, I mean, here is something where there is such a risk of harm to an individual or sets of individuals that we need to be able to make sure that, you know, when something happens, we are being as forthright as we possibly can and getting the messaging out properly. And that really requires a coordinated um, incident response plan. I mean, not every incident is gonna be the same, certainly, but we have to have some underpinnings in terms of uh, how, do we engage, how do we engage with our outside stakeholders? How do we engage on the inside? How do we you know, make sure that we don't have any unanticipated situations like the one where the uh, you know, poor baby had to pass uh, passed away because of the fetal monitoring system. So we have to look at that front and center as well. Like I said um, earlier, with the recognition that minutes, seconds, mm -hmm. in some cases count, we have to attack those right away to be able to head those off at the pass. And again, we have, we have to have good and transparent messaging to make sure that nothing is even given the appearance of being swept under the rug. Yeah, Todd, he, he makes a good point. Everything you do in cybersecurity, we talk about risk, right? The, the levels of risk, what we're accepting and whatnot. This to me is a question of being transparent with the public and saying, hey, there's something going on here that may have elevated the risk of you coming to this hospital. We just want you to know that, you know, it may not be a lot, but anyway, it's an interesting way to look at it. But what are your thoughts? You know, Anthony, uh... You know, I saw this question prior to this uh, panel here. I did some homework on this here, and I wanted to understand this, and I don't want to downplay what happened here. Very significant, definitely a headline grabber. Uh, but I also recognize that we already have some processes in place as far as making safety rounds. We're a 24-7 operation, and if we did have anything uh, that let's say we were under uh, a ransomware attack, we would immediately notify our executive leadership team to then disperse into the clinical teams to do additional monitoring of patients. And so something like this wouldn't happen. And so I feel like there was probably some people process uh, mistakes with this here. And so sure, uh, you know, ransomware is super disruptive and I can see how this can distract and at the same time, I felt like that was a process people failure in this particular situation, but that's just Todd Bill's opinion on this here. Mm -hmm. And I feel confident that our organization is just so patient safety focused that I just think the probability of this happening at our particular organization would be very uh, minimal because we're just held to such high standards that we're so regulated that just this just would never fly. Okay, very good. Teresa? Yeah, I, I definitely um, would, I agree with what Todd and Rich said. I think it's, it's really a delicate situation, um, not knowing all the details around this. A lot of times we're not allowed to disclose, depending on the nature of the, of the attack and the situation, the timing of the disclosures. Um, this is why business continuity planning and the people in process part is so important um, because to Todd's point, if you have some good business continuity planning and some processes around critical items like this, this may be prevented. I mean, there could have been a thousand other reasons why, why the child uh, passed away. 
Um, but I do think you're going to see more and more of these types of lawsuits. If you if you look um, just at the script situation, I think there's a couple class action lawsuits related to, you know, consumers feeling like we should have protected their information better. So I do think the consumers are getting smarter and we're going to see more um, of these types of lawsuits crop up. But it really, you know, there's so many variables. I hate to you know, ding somebody for not disclosing because maybe, you know, disclosing would have put them at more risk than what they were already were. And so I do think there's a lot of timing issues here um, and not being able to share details because you are in the in the commission of a crime, most likely. Mm -hmm. so you want to make sure that you're doing the right communication at the right time. So it's this is a tough one because I, I do think people make assumptions about, well, they just didn't tell anybody because they didn't want people to know, but there mm -hmm. might have been other right. Have been other reasons for that. Very good, John. How do you see these types of lawsuits evolving? Um, I do. So I'm very familiar with this case. We actually were involved in the incident response um, a, a few days after actually the this situation occurred. Um, so I'll be a little careful of what I say or don't say. But I do think they will evolve rapidly. Uh, I think that you know once you have a successful suit of this nature then the opportunity to go back and there's no statute of limitations here, right? If a patient dies and you can demonstrate it was due to, to negligence, there's no real statute of limitation. And these are civil suits, right? Uh, in Germany, we've seen uh, the potential of criminal um, um, cases being brought against hospital staff. Um, <clears throat> the, the suit here, I think the important part to take away is it actually is a broader kind of set of decisions where this suit really talks to um, the responsibility beyond IT, the responsibility at the C-suite to really understand their role in incident response. Uh, and one of the things we've been seeing over the last year is we've had a lot of organizations come to us and say, hey, I don't want you to do a tabletop with my IT team. I want you to focus the tabletop on my executives because they don't really get their role in something like this occurring. And in this suit, one of the questions that I think needs to be brought up to all executives is what's your informed consent policy? Right. So let's forget that there's even an attack, like just me coming into a hospital or one of our loved ones or anyone coming into a hospital. And when they sign that informed consent, that informed consent says that, you know, there is a certain amount of risk that you may uh, need to accept due to any treatment or uh, ther therapy and or uh, procedure that you you go. But in that form consent, we don't actually state or typically most hospitals don't state that one of those risks may be a cyber attack. But yet we live in a world today right, where that is a very critical risk. So as so when you ask, are these suits going to evolve? Yeah, they're going to probably evolve. But most of that is because the C-suite doesn't understand their role. You know, general counsel isn't really thinking about the fact like, hey, we have to go revisit our informed consent policies. This case in particular, the crux of this case is informed consent. The mother made the decision that she would go to this hospital, even though there was an active ransomware attack. The software was Perigen. Um, I was on the board of directors of Perigen uh, and can tell you that, you know, it had nothing to do with Perigen. It had to do with literally the software was locked up because of the ransomware attack. And the mother stated, if I would have known, I would have had my child in another hospital. But the informed consent never said anything about a cyber attack. And I think that that's part of kind of the earlier topics, which is this just a CIO IT security responsibility for any of this? And no, the C-suite really, I think, has to step up and understand you have a very big role in how all of this goes down and what you want done or not done. 
You know, one of the worries that I have with the whole notion of informed consent is that you're asking patients or family members to sign what can be a fairly lengthy document in a state of great duress. Uh, they're not going to be reading it line by line. They're not going to be taking a lawyerly approach to it, saying, oh, I'd like to be able to change this or that. They have a desperate need for themselves and their loved ones to seek care, and they wind up just signing that. And I wonder if I, ultimately, if anyone wanted to sort of go down a legal road with something like this, and someone came back and said, you signed an informed consent, technically that's true. But is it is it a reasonable expectation that someone will have been able to, to have signed that with sound mind? I mean, that's probably a different conversation, but it worries me a little bit because I actually asked our, our patient access people, how often do people actually take the time to read these documents? And she says maybe one or two a week actually do. They just go in there, they need to see somebody, they sign it and off they go. Um, again, they're the state of duress that they're under when they're about to have a procedure or they've got someone who's very ill and needs to be seen right away. You don't mess with that. so. It's just something I think about. Yeah. John, any thoughts? No, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, look, I, I get asked to be expert witness for a lot of attorneys. And so I would probably take the argument on that side of the world that Rich is putting forth that the patient doesn't have the education or means or time to really absorb the informed consent. But I think it does speak to what is the hospital's policy? Is cybersecurity considered enough of a risk that it can impact patient care? And if so, do we have a responsibility to advise patients? Um, and I think, you know, hopefully the answer to that is yes, but I think it is part of illustrating or highlighting that, hey, there's more to this now, you know, over the past two or three years than just IT, IT security. The C-suite ultimately needs to start understanding they have a, a, a skin in the game on this, right? All right, very good. Listen, I can't help myself. We're going to my favorite segment because I want to see, even though, Rich, you kind of you kind of jumped in there with a, with a question, which was great. I did like that. But I want to give you an opportunity to ask each other a question. I want to see what, what you'd like to find out from each other. John, I want to start with you. Uh, you have a question for one or more of your co-panelists. Um, I, don't, I don't have a specific question for any one person. I think it's a group question around, is there one area that we touched on today or that maybe we didn't touch on that you feel, you know, if you were on the Titanic and about to go down, what would you tell um, you know those that survive to remember uh, taking away on this topic? Well, Teresa, I'm going to put you right on under the gun for that one. <laughs> Let's throw you up there first. If the ship was going down, there's so many things that I would say. If the ship were going down, uh, I think it's you have to start. I, I think part of the issue is people don't start on preparing because it's such a monumental task and you know, there's got, you have to find a place to start and just work your way through it. It's not something that's going to be completed overnight. It's a process and we need to continue to learn from others. Um, so we're constantly reevaluating our priorities, which way we're going to do it, which, which is more important, um, what the risk levels are to, to Todd's point earlier. Um, but you have to first, you know, I'll say the step, first step to recovery is you have to recognize you have a problem. And so a lot of times, when you see these big issues like what was just shown is people don't realize that there's an issue that they need to start working on um, and chipping away at it. So that would be probably the one thing I would ask of people is to start, start working on it. Todd. Yeah. You know, adding on to what Theresa just said is I communicate quickly. And what I mean about that is I see, decision paralysis. And so being in cybersecurity, you know, I've been a part of uh, 
security incidents. I've been in ongoing cybersecurity incidents, and I see this time gap of when it happened and when we want to communicate it. And there's kind of that PR element of, well, let's massage this, let's downplay it. And you know what? Rip the Band-Aid off, mm. communicate it very quickly, because I think PR teams can actually hurt uh, the messaging. And even though they might have the best intentions, I think it's very important to validate and communicate very quickly. So this way, everybody is quickly on board, so we don't have to have these side effects. So, John, to your point about, you know, the Titanic going down, well, you know what? It goes back to we're going to plan uh, for this ship going down. So we're going to show everybody the life rafts and the life jackets, and we're going to do a drill. We want to make sure everybody knows where everything is before we even hit that iceberg. And so I think it's that readiness and resilience. And when it does happen, we communicate quickly and effectively. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I, I've just been thinking as people are talking how, to me, um, cybersecurity has now just gotten so joined with business continuity planning that perhaps it was separate and we're we're here to protect the systems and secure them and all that. But there is no there can be no separation between doing that and business continuity planning because one flows right into the next. Um, Rich, you're you're going down on the Titanic, buddy, and. Somebody <laughs> wants. <laughs> oh, they're all things I'd want to do uh, very quickly if I was going down on the Titanic. But well, what if you? What if John wanted your best piece of advice as as you, he's in a life raft? He's not letting you on because it's full. So okay. you're out. What are you going to do? Apropos of this particular topic, um, I think the most important thing that I'd want to make sure people took away is that it's not sufficient to have a plan that only starts and ends with people in leadership. You need to have the floor nurses, you need to have the people who are engaged in everyday patient care, the pa people who are interacting with the patients, the people who know the detailed processes, the people who know how, you know, know the workflows, know how things work, they need to be engaged too. And that's no small task because often they're overburdened, underpaid, uh, hospitals are struggling with staffing issues and turnover. And this is not where people really want to spend their time necessarily given all the other immediate things they need to deal with. But woe be to us if we don't engage with them. So yes, have those plans, have disaster recovery plans, have <coughs> business continuity plans, gotta, gotta, gotta have those. But don't do those in a leadership vacuum. Make sure those are percolating down and that you're hearing from the people who are going to be most directly impacted by something that may go down. Because, Rich, you're gonna, are you going to need some uh, another executive to help you get those clinical folks involved in exercises? I mean, to take that time away from clinical care to do these things. You're going to need other executives to help get that word out. Is that correct? That's absolutely true. I, I can get the word out and I have good relationships with um, other members of our leadership and, you know, folks in the management level and whatnot. But, you know, it's, it, it can't just be as another, another thing coming from IT. I mean, people need to understand the wide ranging and deeply impacting uh, operational impact this is going to be. And they need to hear that best from the people uh, up through whom they report. So yeah, we need to have many. We need to have many people engaged in bringing these folks to the table. It's not always easy, like I said, because they, they have so many other things that they have to do that seem like they are more immediate in nature. But if we don't do it, we're going to be in big trouble. If God forbid, we're ever in a position where we wish we did. Very good, Rich. Do you have a question for one or more of your co-panelists? 
Uh, sure. I mean, organizationally, in my world, I, I mentioned that um, Biomed doesn't report to me, but I happen to have a, a good relationship with them and they get it and I get it and we work together um, on a number of different things pertaining to cybersecurity. In your worlds, what's the organizational structure like vis-a-vis? How do you interact with the medical device people and whatever that organizational structure may be, uh, what are some of the challenges that you're encountering with that? Teresa, let's start with you. Yeah, so probably about eight years ago, I formed a team that we call our biotech team, which was an internal IT team. And their responsibility was to be the partner to Biomed. So the way we kind of carved out duties was my team would be responsible for software, um, integrations, uh, servers, PCs, those types of things. And then biomed would really be do more of the traditional biomed type of work, which is, you know, repairing equipment, uh, you know, preventative maintenance, those types of things. Um, And so I think that, you know, early on, that might have been pretty forward thinking. I wasn't really thinking about cyber at that point. Now what we're seeing is, is that the volume of work is so large that we're moving towards how do we merge the two teams together for Number one, so we have more people who understand cyber, understand what to do, and can maintain and patch equipment and software around biomedical devices. But two, just having enough people to do all the work, the volume of work is is huge. So just to give you an example, we have a product where we can survey all of our equipment or Internet of Things that's on our network. At any given time, we might have you know, 20,000 medical devices on our network that need attention for whatever reason. And so having enough resource, it's going to be important that we pull our teams together and everybody kind of understand how to take care of things. So that's sort of our next evolution. But it really helped to have that IT person who understood software partnering with a hardware person and putting those people together. So we've spent a lot of many years kind of cultivating that relationship. So it's kind of worked for us where we didn't have to adopt biomed so early in the process, but I think it's just a matter of time. Uh, thank you. Todd? Yeah, as mentioned earlier, uh, you know how we had our HTM group, which is our biomedical group, uh, merged already into IT and that happened years ago. And that just builds the synergies of building the bridges between the clinical side and the IT side because they both bleed over together, especially from a business continuity perspective. And so our goal is to not only improve our visibility, but also, uh, you know, what could be patient impacting. And so, as I mentioned, you know, we're trying to focus on trying to get a grant to try to get some funds to be able to shore this up because I feel like, uh, to John's point, you know, we see the lawsuits emerging, especially when there's, uh, you know, a cyber event, you can almost expect, you know, some type of litigation to be coming along. And I do feel that the biomedical devices is going to be the new frontier, that if we start to have any kind of availability issues, that that's going to be trouble for us. And so it's kind of another reason why I'm doing it. So not only from a cyber perspective, but also uh, risk um, reduction for litigation as well. John, what have you seen in terms of different reporting structures where uh, IT versus IT security versus clinical engineering, where those folks are sitting? Have you seen one model that you think works particularly well? Uh, we've seen. Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, so uh, real quick on this one, uh, I always hear this, who should the CISO report into? And, and hands down, it is CIO, CISO, because they both work together and having them separate. Sometimes you just get these islands of information or, or silos of excellence, but never together. And it's something I'm very passionate about because when you integrate the clinical, the CIO and the CISO together, it makes a huge difference because it's a force multiplier from a leadership perspective, but also from a technical perspective. John, I'm so sorry. So Todd, Todd, real quick, you like the CISO reporting into the CIO, correct? Yeah. That's what you're saying. Well, I mean, Rich made a point before about having essentially both roles and the, the conflict. And I've heard that before, that there can be that sort of conflict. Let's say it, at a high level, the CIO wants to go, 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 and the CISO might want to slow things down. And if you have the CISO reporting to the CIO, maybe you don't get to slow things down as much as you'd like to. So, I mean, but I mean, you like it that way. Some people say there may be issues that way. Any any quick thought on that, Todd? Uh, you know what, you know, to Rich's point, I agree with them because it comes down to executive maturity for the CISO and being able to just, there's there's going to be friction. There's no doubt about it. It mm -hmm. works both ways. And you just have to have that strong partnership because it's better together because my CIO and myself, we're a powerful force together. If we're working against each other, it weakens us. Mm -hmm. And it's important that we strategically recognize that. Very good. All right, John. Um, back to the idea of where you see IT, IT security, and clinical engineering, how you see those working best together in any particular setup. Yeah, we see you know both models where it's uh, clinical or biomed is independent. We see a slight shift to becoming part of IT. Uh, but I think, you know, and even with the CISO CIO conversation, and should that be similar, I think the thing that I try to remind people is, you know, you all have the same logo on your paycheck. So regardless of what the organizational lines may say, it's really about the relationships. And if you really focus on, look, when something goes wrong, you know, whatever the petty day-to-day -day stuff and jurisdictional lines may be, we're all in this together. And if we go back to the fact that it's about making sure nothing happens to that patient, you start changing again the equation and hopefully the relationship. So yeah, we can redraw the lines. And like I said, we're probably seeing a shift towards uh, biomed moving to IT. But if we don't have those relationships, it's still going to be ineffective. And I think it's got to start with the relationships you have with the colleagues and, and management. Very good. Todd, do you have a question for one or more of your co-panelists? Yeah, uh, this is for John. So John, you know, I know that, uh, Cybersecurity is becoming front center. It used to be kind of, uh, you know, back in the janitor closet uh, department, and it's starting to be a little bit more on the forefront. Do you find that organizations that have very mature cybersecurity presence or, or, and a footprint in an organization, does it kind of take the liability exposure down a little bit from that if there's going to be some type of event that occurred that if one organization had a front center cybersecurity versus cybersecurity was kind of still seen as the back end function. Do you see the liability exposure shifting or, or is it better for one, worse for another? Yeah, I actually had a lot in that quite, we could do a whole conversation on just that topic, but I'll try to keep it quick because I know we need to, to kind of wrap things up, but maturity has a direct impact on risk reduction, insurance liability premiums and post event 
liability. Uh, to make that a little simpler, just because you're HIPAA compliance does not mean you have a mature cybersecurity program. So if you do have a mature cybersecurity program, your position, your defensibility uh, increases, right? And, and I'm talking about legal defensibility. Your legal liability should be reduced. Um, and there's actually, I think it's HR, I want to say 789 or 7898. I forgot which it is, but it, there's an actual executive order that was passed um, in two years ago now that actually says that uh, HHS has to take in consideration the maturity of your security program in determining fines. So I think, yeah, Todd, every, the more you can do to truly mature the security program and not just check the boxes and say I'm HIPAA compliant, it definitely plays in your interest on multiple levels and depending on if you're going to deal with a civil suit or, or regulatory fines or whatever that may be. And John, there are things like um, 405D and I believe NIST where if you've shown you've uh, worked to be in compliance with some of those frameworks, that's also a mitigating factor. Yeah, it all goes. Yeah. And that all comes under that HR mm -hmm. I want to say 789, but uh, it comes back to that. So, um, you know, so, yeah, anything you can do to involve maturity, I think, is, is critical. Very good. Uh, Teresa, do you have a question for one or more of your co-panelists? I do. I hate to pick on John, but um, John's the man, I, I, you know, and you said this could be something that's keeping us up at night. So how would you recommend dealing with biomedical device? manufacturers Ooh, great question who still, who still insist on that you cannot patch their equipment and their devices i'm working with a very large biomedical device manufacturer right now very large who has said if you patch our devices we will not support you any longer and so i'm i'm looking for the best route and i think lots of people have this issue <laughs> uh, of escalation when you get that, when you get that type of pushback for something that is a clear vulnerability, and we've pointed it out to them that it is a vulnerability, and they still say no. Yeah, several. I love this question, and there's several things working in your favor. Um, and I'll try to list them as quickly as I can in the interest of time. But uh, happy to follow up on this. Um, one is there is a very large myth that manufacturers cannot patch and address security issues without having to go through uh, 501k clearance and redo the clearance. That is absolutely not true. They can issue patches. Typically what I see is when hospitals are in this situation is they're dealing with the field engineers or somebody in the sales group or services team. So second thing you can do is escalate to their product security team. Philips, GE, Siemens all have product security teams with product CISOs that are different than their IT CISO. Uh, and they all take that very seriously. The other thing we counsel hospitals to do is have your general counsel prepare a letter that is sent to that uh, organization, the manufacturer, advising them that you believe this is a patient safety issue and creates patient risk. And uh, if there is any harm that comes to patients, they will be held liable. And then lastly is contacting FDA and advising them that you've tried these things and you still believe there's a, an actual security risk. You can report any security risk to FDA and then they will they will look into it and, and kind of spur up to determine how serious this is and, and then advise the manufacturer that they have to do something. So those are some strategies. There's some others, but I would the general counsel one seems to work really, really well because now you're putting them on notice that. If something happens, we are going to take action against you, especially if it impacts patient care. That's actually one I haven't thought of. The other two, I was like, okay, I'm going to do those two, but <laughs> that's a good one. I, I thank you very much. Yeah, it's the big gun that hopefully you don't have to pull out, but you may be in the situation to do that. 
<clears throat> All right. Very good. Well, I'm glad John's question was sort of uh, took my last question, which is your final best piece of advice. That was essentially John's uh, Titanic question. So uh, that's good because we are just about out of time. Uh, Teresa, fantastic last question. Uh, really good information there for folks dispelling some myths and giving some some uh, paths forward. So thank you, John, for that information. We are just about out of time. Um, regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck. Um, you will receive an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. And if you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team. Go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel today, Todd Bell, Teresa Meadows, Rich Temple and John Gomez, and I want to thank Sensato for sponsoring, making this event possible, and our attendees for coming. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.